0: This is the Sound on Sound Podcast.
1: This is the Sound on Sound Podcast brought to you by Sound on Sound magazine's editor-in-chief, Paul White. Hello. And technical editor Hugh Rob Johns. Hiya. Yeah. I'm Chris Mayswright, SOS News Editor, and I'd like to start off with a round of applause for getting to number two in the iTunes Tech News charts. <laughs> clap, clap. If you're not already a podcast subscriber, why not find us on the podcasts page of iTunes? or follow the link from the SOS website. This month we hear from
2: author Paul Nagel about the Korg M50, which is a brand new cost-effective synth workstation, and we'll discuss whether there's still a place for the workstation in the computer-dominated studio we have today. Plus we hear about the latest new technologies in the live sound world, Plaza, which is the UK's Professional Lighting and Sound
1: Association's annual trade show. But first, let's get some news. Synth designers Rob Pappen have announced what they claim to be the world's first rhythm guitar synthesizer. RG is capable of playing realistic sounding guitar grooves, but also those that you wouldn't normally hear in real life. You can check out audio demos at timespace.com, which is the website of UK distributors Time and Space, or if you're an enhanced podcast listener and you have web access, click on the link on your screen now. M-Audio have been busy recently announcing a new audio interface and two new active near field monitors in the space of about two weeks. The DSM-1 and DSM-2 are both monitors that have been co-designed by fellow Avid Group company DigiDesign. They use DSP technology for the crossover and onboard EQ settings, and they have a set of tone controls that allow their output to be customised to suit their environment. Watch out for them in SOS over the coming months. The Profire 610 is M-Audio's latest Firewire audio interface. It's a 6-in, 10-out device that can be bus-powered, so you can use it on the move with a laptop. It has two mic inputs fitted with octane preamps, and two headphones outputs with independent level controls. Onboard DSP allows the user to set up custom mixes in the box, and it can be used in standalone mode, acting as a simple mic pre and A to D and D to A converter. Check out maudio.co.uk for more. There's a new plugin from Stillwell Audio, who are gaining pace among today's audio software developers. The Rocket, as it's called, is a compressor that's been designed to have an incredibly fast attack time, meaning it can react very quickly to sharp transients, such as those found on a drum kit recording. According to the developers, its lowest attack setting is just 5 microseconds. To put that into comparison, the attack time on a URI 1176 ranges from 20 to 800 microseconds, and that's considered to be really quick. To try out a free demo, head to stillwellaudio.com. Finally, Universal Audio have announced the long awaited UAD2, the successor to their UAD1 DSP platform. There are three new cards at the centre of the system Solo, which has 2.5 times the power of UAD1, Duo, which has 5 times the power, and Quad, which is 10 times as powerful as the original card. Paul, you went down to the press launch in London earlier this month. What do you think about the new stuff? Well, I guess it's no surprise
3: that things like this get more powerful, but the price is is remarkably low, considering what you get. I mean, there's three different bundles of effects, but even if you get the biggest bundle and the fastest card, the price still compares very well with some of the uh, native plugins that you can buy. And using the very fast card, you can have a full-size Neve console with more channels than any Neve console's ever had. You can have them all running, so... Uh, it's it's a pretty impressive thing. They've also updated the support software that comes with it, so that it's easier to buy products online, register demos, get upgrades, that kind of thing. It seems a very smooth package, really, and I can't wait to try it out.
2: Is all the software the same as the original? They haven't added anything new in terms of the plugin
3: at the moment. It's all the original plugins, and a lot of these have had to be recompiled because it's a different kind of DSP platform. And I believe that one or two of them uh, probably won't be finished until the end of the year, but most of them are available now. After that, they'll be adding some new things. There are quite a few bits and pieces in the pipeline, but as of now it's really just a clean switch from the old card to the new card with the same plugins. Right. Sounds like one for the
2: Christmas list to me.
1: So that's UAD2 from Universal Audio. Find out more at uaudio.com.
2: For a very long time now, Korg have been one of the most prolific manufacturers in the industry. Their products reach far into many fields, from pro audio to musical instruments and much more besides. The latest product is a workstation called the M50, and you can read the world-exclusive review of it in the October issue of Sound on Sound, and on our website, of course. But for a little bit of insight here and now, special for you, here's SOS's regular Paul
0: Nagel to tell you a bit more about it. On test. Korg have dominated the music workstation market since the M1 and the latest in this pedigree line boasts the same enhanced definition synthesis as the high-end M3. The boffins at Korg have worked hard extracting the M3's essence for implant into something more affordable. The M50 has a large touchscreen, offering a clear graphical interface for patch selection and editing. Not that extensive editing will be a priority, Korg's programmers have done their job well with literally hundreds of quality patches and combinations ready to go. These range from superb stereo pianos warm strings, choirs, and a wide selection of synth tones, percussion and more. If an M3 suits your taste but not your pocket, an M50 must be worth a look. Its 256MB of PCM waveforms provide a wide, rich palette for any musical genre. The new semi-weighted keyboard offers fast synth action from its 61 and 73 key models, but if you really want to dig into those pianos, the 88 key version features Korg's top-of-the-line RH3 graded action keyboard no workstation can be complete without a sequencer this one is simplicity itself it's 16 midi tracks bringing an old-style intuitive means of capturing performances and if computers and digital audio workstations are more your thing the m50 can also be used as a plug-in instrument in vst RTAS, and mac audio unit formats a standalone editor is bundled in too. recent Korgs have boasted first-class arpeggiators and the m50 is no exception in sequencer or combination modes, you get two arpeggiators plus the dedicated drum track. Finally, no Korg synth will be complete without an impressive effects implementation. With no less than five insert effects, two master effects, one total effect, and a three-band EQ for every part, let's just say you should be able to produce some pretty decent mixes, without ever leaving the M50. Think of it as a devoted backing band that will never get bored, and will never demand more beer. On Test
1: The M50 costs just £900 for the most basic version that was in the review, and probably in the US somewhere between 1500 and $2,000. Do you think the low price will attract some computer users over to the workstation platform? It's hard to
3: know. I think a lot of people get very entrenched in the way that they work. People who like workstations will stay with them, and people who like computers will stay with them. But what particularly excites me about the future are products where you can use them in a standalone mode and then hook them up to your computer later to do a bit of more in-depth editing
2: i think that's a really good way to work yeah i think you're right i mean i think uh, Korg have taken that on board with the m50 there it does come with plug-in uh, editor and plug-in software that you can use to uh, to access stuff from the computer if you want to get into sort of hardcore tweaking inside the machine yeah i think it's definitely
3: the way to go if you can make hardware friendly to the computer world then people are more likely to go for it
1: and what do you think about the touchscreen interface?
2: Yeah, I think the touchscreen interface has kind of come of age now. We're all used to it as a, as a way of working, and, and the quality of touchscreens has become really quite good. I mean, you get it everywhere now. I mean, the car's got touchscreen controls in it. Uh, a lot of computers now have touchscreen uh, laptops.
3: Some of them do. Yeah, so. SatNav has it. I think providing it's well-designed and the, the little squares that you have to press are not too small for your fingers, which is very frustrating, then it's a really good interface. Yeah, it becomes very intuitive, I think.
2: It's, it's good.
0: works well. This is the Sound on
4: Sound
3: podcast. Here at SOS, we're always on hand to answer your questions. Our lively forum on the Sound on Sound website is a good place to start if you want quick answers. But if you'd like us to answer your question in person, why not email us at soundadvice at soundonsound.com. Sound
1: advice. The first question this month comes from Peter in Slough. He asks, what can you do to bolster the sound of a weak drum kit?
2: well with anything like this it's always best to start from the source and make sure that the drum kit's as good as you can possibly get it and that usually comes down to making sure it's tuned properly what do you think paul this is very true and
3: even further back than tuning is um selecting good heads i mean quite often people come into my studio with a drum kit which has probably still got the original head on with more wrinkles than norabatty stockings and they just sound dreadful and then they say but can you make it sound like neil pitt and the answer is um probably not really so a good kit, well-tuned is the starting point. Then you need a drummer who knows how to hit it properly and either a sympathetic room or one
2: that's well enough damp that it's not going to get in the way and overcolor the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, all, all those things I think are absolutely spot-on. It does come down to getting the source right um, and then, as you say, compression, EQ, choosing the mics carefully. But if your drummer doesn't hit the drums properly in the first place, you're kind of on a hiding to nothing, so get it right at source.
1: What are your top tuning tips then, Paul? It's actually
3: quite difficult. Uh, it's not just a matter of getting an even tension, which is part of the deal, but also finding a pitch of the head that suits the resonant frequency of the shell. And There's only a, a relatively small range over which a tom-tom, for example, can be tuned before it starts to sound forced, either too flabby or, or, or kind of zonky. It's a, it's a real skill getting it, uh, getting it right. And then you've got the lower head to tune as well. So um, get someone who knows how to do it properly to show you, because once you've seen how it's done, then you'll be able to do it again.
1: Sound advice. A man called John, whose surname I can't pronounce, apologies, asks, can I hang my monitors from my ceiling? And we're assuming he's talking about hanging it with, with uh, metal wire or something like that. I
2: was going to say, is this for storage or to listen to them? Uh, <laughs> the answer is yes, you can. Um, I wouldn't recommend it in most circumstances, but it can be done. And actually, I've seen it done... In several radio studios for various reasons, mainly to do with floor space, actually, um, there are a couple of things you need to, to be aware of when you hang a speaker from the ceiling, and the first is that most speakers are fairly heavy, uh, so you need to be very careful about what you screw it into into the ceiling. You need to make sure you find the joists, obviously, and not just screw it into the plasterboard because you're going to end up with some dented equipment or dented heads. Um, The other thing is to make sure that what you use to suspend them with is is strong enough and stable enough. Um, You can get strong steel wire, for instance. I've seen it done with chains before now, although that worries me slightly, because I think the the links would move and you might get some kind of rattles and hums and buzzes and that kind of thing. Um, And you need to make sure that you triangulate the mounting point so that the speaker itself can't move. The last thing you want is the thing to swing backwards and forwards. And that's really the big problem with it. The idea of most loud speaker mounts is to hold the speaker as solidly and as stably as you can, The last thing you want is for the bass driver to be banging backwards and forwards and the whole speaker moving backwards and forwards with it because that'll affect the accuracy of the treble response. Uh, And if you're going to suspend it on chains, that's quite likely to happen. The speaker's almost guaranteed to swing backwards and forwards to an extent. So, yes, you can do it. I wouldn't recommend it unless you're really stuck for floor space.
3: I think I would uh, agree with that. Uh, especially if they're small light speakers because the in- inertia of the uh, of the, the driver kicking forwards is going to try and make the box move backwards. And if it can, you don't have that damping that you've got if you're sitting on a shelf or a piece of non-slip rubber mat. And in extreme circumstances, you can end up with the sound of the woofer modulating the sound of the tweeter, which is uh, not a good thing. The other consideration is that however you mount them, you do still need to look after the angle so the tweeter's pointing down towards your listening position or thereabouts. If the things are too high, uh, you're not going to get the right sound anyway. Sound
0: advice.
1: An anonymous email came in to us uh, asking, what headphones should I use for live sound?
3: Well, I think the anonymous answer to that would be probably some enclosed ones because you don't want the sound of the gig or, uh, if you're doing live recording, the sound of the performance getting in the way of what you're hearing back over your monitors. So something with really good isolation would be ideal. In very loud situations, there are various manufacturers now making headphones with really high levels of isolation most of them don't sound particularly good as listening headphones but they're actually adequate for checking that you've got a good clean signal and the outside of them are quite heavy and tight fitting rather like
2: the things that you would wear at a shooting range have you tried these who no i haven't I'm, I'm a bit worried about using headphones in live situations because if the isolation's not that great you're going to inevitably have to turn them up louder and then you risk your hearing even more So uh, something that gives you the best possible isolation is the thing to aim at. And then it's just a case of finding a company that does something that sounds half-decent as well. The alternative idea, uh, which just popped into my mind just now, is that you might use something like um, some really good earbuds or or, um, moulded earplugs for your sound source and then put on some standard ear defenders over the top to exclude the outside noise that might be a better approach although it's a bit more fiddly i suppose
3: that sounds like a pretty good idea i think a, a set of molded earplugs costs what around two or three hundred pounds with some little uh, inserts in them so that you can use them with your ipod as well on the train so they're quite handy
1: one of the hottest topics on the sos forum recently has been about music technology education guys what are your thoughts on the education route
3: I think my view on it is that any knowledge that you can gain about recording or indeed any job that you want to go into is is going to be valid no matter how, how you get it some kind of formal learning route is is a way to get more information into your head in in a more concentrated period of time especially as you've got the incentive that having paid for the course you're going to make the best of it so it's got to be a good thing what seems to worry me is that the audio industry is actually a relatively small industry and there are thousands and thousands of college places now around the world which is going to lead to disappointment because only the best people are going to get into these jobs.
2: Yeah, I think that's true. I think um, I mean, the, the cream will always float to the top. So the very best people on these courses will almost certainly find a job because they are the very best. And, and there will always be a need for that, obviously. But um, but the jobs that do exist are so hugely oversubscribed. I think that's a big concern. And as you say, if you want to learn about music technology, then you know any course is going to be helpful. But there are other ways to learn about it, too. You can read things in the magazine. You can read books. You can get the gear and experiment and do things yourself. Um and I'm slightly worried about the idea of going on a course. And, in, and if you go to university, it's a very expensive thing to do these days. You know, most students walk away at the end of it with ten, twenty thousand pounds £20,000 worth of debt. That's a lot of debt to have to pay back if you haven't got a job at the end of it to uh, to build upon.
3: Have you got any idea
2: roughly how many commercial scale recording studios we might have in the UK? I think if we're talking about, you know, the, the big well-known studios like Abbey Road and, and that that kind of of level you're talking about well you could probably count them on the fingers of one hand without too much trouble to be honest mid-scale there's obviously a fair few more but you know we're still looking at at tens of thousands of graduates every year for at best a few hundred jobs so something to consider when you're signing that check it certainly is but you know we're all gray-haired and old and fuddy-duddy perhaps we're looking at it from the wrong point of view chris you've done one of these courses that's how you got to sound on sound what do you what's your take on it
1: well i think you you've got to look at it with a level head it's um A degree is not a guaranteed job, but what a university offers in terms of extracurricular activities and and an environment where you can meet other people, like-minded people, and collaborate on projects um, and do things like student radio. Um, I mean, for example, I was an engineer at the student radio and we completely rebuilt a, a radio studio. That's not something that you'd be able to do with your mates, you know. Um, unless you had a a large amount of money. And then there's things like getting into live sound through the student union at at their events, and also things like Saturday work. Obviously, if you're you're a student, your weekends are completely free, so you can... Obviously, there there are limited jobs for this, but you can go and try and get Saturday work in a local studio. So the environment that university provides, especially for people who don't live in urban areas, can actually really help people who, who otherwise wouldn't have access to facilities such as studios. Yeah. It's all good points. Funnily
2: enough, I, I did when I was at university, I did the same thing. I was in the university radio station. I got involved with with live sound stuff, um, Saturday jobs in music shops, all that kind of thing. So it's, it's good to know that that carries on. I think the other thing to be aware of, as you say, is that um, there are a lot of different courses out there and the quality varies enormously between them. They're not all the same. So it is a good, uh, it is very important, I think, to look at them, evaluate what they have in the way of Uh, equipment, check out how much studio time each student gets to work on things by themselves and collaboratively. Uh, Check out the the experience of the tutors, what kind of background they've got, whether they really know what they're talking about, what kind of links they have into industry, whether they can help you do um, work experience, job placements, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, just look at it carefully with, as you say, a very level head.
3: Yes. And also don't go into it just because it looks like an easy option and a bit of fun. You've got to be very, very dedicated to, to make it in music. And if you're one of these people is going to go off sick merely because your kidneys failed or something like that, you're just not going to get in there. If, 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 if you don't leave your fingernails embedded in the end cheeks of the mixer when they try to drag
2: you out the studio, you know, you're not that kind of guy. Yeah, it's true. When, when Paul and I go and do a lot of uh, Q&A sessions at, at colleges up and down the country, you can see without any trouble at all the two or three people in in the course uh, you know come to those kind of things who have really got the determination to make it work and they're the guys who are always in the studio they're always recording stuff they're always doing things with their mates um they live breathe and, and eat audio recording and and they're the guys who are going to make it
1: i think to sum it up if you're going to go and go to university to to get a music technology qualification then Only do it if you're completely dedicated um, and expect to put a lot of time in because you do have to work extremely hard to get anything, you know, to get a good degree. Um, And let's face it, if you do a degree and you get a third, you're not going to put it on your CV. So it'll be three years wasted and probably about 15 grand's worth of debt.
2: And the other thing maybe worth bearing in mind is that music technology courses aren't the only way in by any stretch of the imagination. Um, You could do just a straight music course. Um, If you've got a a technical interest as well, you can do that in your own time. A lot of people go in with engineering based courses, um, electronic engineering, computer engineering, those kind of things. And again, you know, get involved with the student radio, get involved with some some live sound stuff, maybe Um, have your own gear and develop your own experience that way. And in many ways, I think having a proper solid engineering background makes you a lot more versatile and it makes you stand out from some of the crowd. At the beginning of September, Chris went down to the Professional Lighting and
3: Sound Association show in London, otherwise known as Plaza, held at Earl's Court. Here's what he found.
1: Okay, I'm at the Plaza show. I'm going to start off by talking to Morton from DPA Microphones. They've got um, two new microphones, uh, which are designed for the live user.
4: Morton, tell me about them a bit more. Okay, I will. Well, we brag and say it's four different microphones, uh, but... uh, You're right, it's really just two different mics with four different holders. So it's um, instrument microphones, microphones dedicated for specific instruments. There's one for saxophone, one for guitar, one for violin, and one for trumpet. And when I say that it's two different microphones, that's because the microphone for the trumpet is slightly less sensitive Uh, because of the high sound pressure level coming from the trumpet. So um, for the three other instruments, we can use the same uh, microphone and uh, with three different holders for it. So the microphone is actually a hypercardioid condenser microphone, of course, as DPA only does. And uh, it really is designed with a small cardioid capsule with an interference tube on and then built straight onto a shark mount and with a gooseneck uh, gooseneck that is adjustable onto the holder. It's uh, very easy to mount, it's a one hand mount uh, solution. It's designed for being used on stage uh, so we can um, get as much gain before feedback. Now then some people will say, well we've had great um, solutions for violin from DPA before with the 4060 and that is true. The, uh, the Omni 4060 uh, is great for violin, but there is just that uh, sometimes the uh, occasion when you are on stage with uh, a drummer or a, a loud guitar and uh, you need that extra gain for the violin and that's when you need the cardio solution or if you're in the orchestra pit.
1: So is it, is it similar to your existing technology in terms of capsule design, um, just kind of tuned for the stage so you get less feedback or more gain
4: before feedback? You can say so. The the engine behind it is uh, more or less the same as we have in the uh, in the 4088 or the 4080 cardioid miniature mic, but uh, tuned slightly different, um, and, have, and the interference tube, of course, changes everything in terms of directionality. But um, we supply this mic, uh, all of these mics, with the phantom adapter, which has a, a high pass filter in it. So it cuts off at uh, 80 hertz. Okay.
1: Excellent. Thank you for that, Morton. Apart from those new DPA mics, there are a couple of new things from the Harman Group, namely the Soundcraft SI3, which is an entry-level live mixer. Still, it costs £20,000 or thereabouts. So there's not a great deal for the studio guy, but if you're more used to the stage than the control room, there's quite a lot here. Looking around the show, there are lots of lights, as usual, but look a little closer and you'll see that the bulb has been replaced by the LED which is an indication that LED technology should be becoming cheaper and cheaper and hopefully making it into the pubs and clubs around the place. Also making it cheaper for bands and performing musicians to get decent lighting in their rigs for not much money. For more of this kind of stuff, keep your eyes on Performing Musician magazine, which is Sound on Sound's sister publication dedicated to the live musician. Find out more at soundonsound.com.
0: This is the Sound on Sound
1: well, there you are. We've come to the end of another
0: edition
2: of the Sound on Sound podcast. Remember that our focus right subscribe and win competition is running until the end of November, so you've still got plenty of time to enter.
3: Also, keep your eyes open on the news pages of the SOS website for reports direct from the AES show in San Francisco, which is taking place at the beginning of October. We'll see you next time.